Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello and welcome to Off The Beat and Track Podcast. I'm your host, I'm Stu Whiffin. It's another week, therefore it's another episode. And today's episode's wonderful. I sit down with Jeremy Pritchard of Everything Everything and, uh, and we have a lovely chat and, uh, and you're going to hear it shortly. Um, but before we do have that chat, I just want to say um, a big thank you to 76 for producing this podcast uh, and a big thank you to Scroobius Pip and everybody at the Distraction Pieces Network. Um, I should also say, if this is your first time listening to Off the Beaten Track, um, when you finish listening to my chat with Jeremy, why not have a, a look in the archives and, uh, and see if there's any other episodes that appeal? Uh, we do touch on a few uh, in this. We, we, we mention um, Tim Dello, um, label boss at uh, Transgressive, and um, I'm trying to think. We end up speaking post-interview uh, as well about uh, the Maccabees and, and, uh, and just, just the fact that Jeremy... Uh, obviously, uh, been playing with with Foles, and I knew that Felix White had been uh, standing in for a few shows as well. So we got chatting about that, and then uh, he mentioned that he'd listened to my uh, interview uh, with Orlando Weeks, um, which is a great chat. Um, and so, yeah, if you're, uh, yeah, when you're finished, if you enjoy uh, off the beaten track, go and have a rummage in the archives to uh, to see what else is there for your. Ear holes. Um, right, I think we can get on with um, today's episode. Please enjoy Off the Beat and Track podcast with Jeremy Pritchard. It's Off the Beat and Track podcast on the Distraction Pieces Network. You've made stew with him. Okay, we are recording. Sitting opposite me today is Jeremy Pritchard. Hello. Hello. I wish I was sitting actually opposite you. I know. I know. We could we could have gone to the boozer. I know. Shaken hands. I know. Like with one's fellow human being. I know. It's, All this this um remote stuff is becoming a drag. <laughs> it, it is. It's, it's weird. I've actually got my first one um in about a month's time. I'm I'm chatting, oh, cool. I'm chatting to the vaccines and they're they're gonna they're gonna come into the, the, the studio, which is like the first oh, one. So I'm quite sort of looking forward to yeah, that would be really nice. And it would be strange to sit opposite someone again because... Yeah, absolutely. Like, for, for, for you know, two years, it was always just sitting in my little studio and and since, you know, what's happened, it has been quite strange. It's been good as well because, obviously, you know, you, you said you're in the middle, you know, we spoke before, press recording, you are saying that you've been in town doing a, a video and stuff and, you know, things like that mean that to then go, oh, also, have you got, like, time to come over to my studio and do that? 
can sometimes be a bit more laborious and tricky, whereas mm. you can go, you have to jump on Zoom. So it's been a kind of catch-22 yeah. for podcasts, and I've got to chat to people that I probably would never have chatted to, you know, had had, had COVID not happened. But uh, mm. it, is, it is nicer to sort of sit and kind of uh, just get the kind of, you get a feeling when you're in a room with someone. Don't yeah, you? that's you know a proper I mean? conversation, isn't it? I th- I'm sure we've all got better at this, though. This particular digital discipline, though. definitely, no. definitely. Jeremy, the first song is the song with the greatest ever intro. What are you saying? I thought this was such an interesting question to ask because no one, no one asks this. And I saw that you had seven questions. And I thought, well, I've got exactly seven favourite bands and artists, so I'll, <laughs> I'll probably find a way to weave weave them all in. And actually, I haven't at all. I've got a few of them in. Okay. But um, so this is um, actually this is one of them. Um, it really made me think about how important that is. <laughs> you know, your first impression within a song, and uh, um, I could have chosen "Everything in Its Right Place" by Radiohead because I. I feel like in this podcast, by the way, I'm going to talk about the music that I didn't choose as much as I did. That's, that's, <laughs> that's fine, that's fine. But um, yeah, because that song in particular, I remember I had a CD player that had um, like an alarm clock in it when I was starting sixth form. And uh, so I put Kid A on the night before and then it would come on at seven in the morning and that song would wake me up. So that I always associated it with the feeling of like gaining consciousness. And I think that's kind of a really cool thing to get from an intro, feeling of like slowly coming alive. Um, and actually what I did choose was this, which is Europe Endless by Kraftwerk, which I think has that same sort of sense of anticipation. It's from the Trans-Europe Express album, sort of vaguely about a train journey, yeah. um, pan-European train journey, um, sort of concept record. And I think you get that sort of feeling of beginning the journey, pulling away from Dusseldorf Station. Yeah. At the beginning, you get the little... There's a, synth arpeggio for ages and then you get a female choir sound come in which is something quite sort of classically germanic about that something pastoral idealistic and idyllic and uh, yeah it does relate to german classical music i think and a lot of their music does and then you get the bass line come in and it's a little bit clunky because they're still doing everything by hand at this point they're still yeah. human beings they they want to be the robots but they're not there yet and they don't have the machinery so they're still playing everything with the knitting needle drum pads and stuff um and then when the when the drums drop in and you get the melody, it's just the most joyous moment. And it is like a feeling of like really picking up speed and beginning the journey in earnest like out of the city into the countryside. And yeah, I think the 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 rhythm that the drums settle into as well, the sort of offbeat hi-hats, that thing, you can see how they had got that from US Disco. And then they gave it to Joy Division, yeah. who gave it, to all the bands in the mid 2000s and yeah loads of which we'll end up talking about later i'm sure um and this is 76 1976 from west germany and was that pre or in, post autobahn it's post autobahn right autobahn 74 right and then they did radioactivity 75 and this is 76 this is when they really start to understand how to change music forever i yeah. think um and i do think that they are maybe the most radical group of all time alongside the Beatles um and yeah so Iggy and Bowie are making like the idiot at the same time over in Berlin and then Bowie does low a year later and I think they take so much from the the sound palette of this um and in fact they both get name checked later on in the album as well and uh even like the fact that it's kind of a linear structure is one of the things that's most 
radical about it. Yeah. And David Bowie knew this, and he pointed out that he, he'd been really influenced by craft work and people talked about the sounds that they'd used and how he'd, you know, a lot of the production on low, it's got that really harsh industrial mm-hmm. mechanical feel to it. Um, but I think the, the, the thing that they had that was completely new and, and completely their own was the fact that the structure is so linear. It's not really verse chorus stuff at all. It's, uh, and that's, that's what they gave to modern dance music, I think, as well as the actual sonics of it. Um, and it, also, this album and um, this song in general, it is repetitive mm. and overlong, like a train journey can be. I know it even it even goes as far as to ape some of the boringness <laughs> of being on a train. And uh, any touring band knows this feeling, like crossing borders in Europe on your bunk overnight and not really knowing what country you're in, yeah. and it not really mattering. And uh, it's got a kind of humour humorous aspect to it you know some of the lyrics are like parks hotels and houses europe endless it's just like fucking hell (laughs) 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 how how much further (laughs) but um but also you know it it kind of it's it's also it's it's um it's preaching unification not just of germany but unity of europe in general i think that's a really forward-thinking pan-european attitude land without borders christ knows Germany, their their national identity is completely up for grabs at this point because it's been razed to the ground along with most of their cities. And Kraftwerk's uh, hometown of Dusseldorf is a really new industrial city, like so much of Germany, and they're making machinery and tools. And it's the music of the factories, as as they said. So uh, yeah, I just find it all so compelling. I really, really love Kraftwerk. How did you how did you stumble across Kraftwerk? Via Actually, the record I almost chose but didn't for this category, which was Kid A, because it sort of introduced me to electronic music. Yeah. Um, And friends of mine who were like into synths and drum machines and stuff kind of started buying the Warp catalogue and sort of looking into the history of electronic music, basically. And and I was doing the same. And I I remember just after I'd finished my A-levels, going to a mate's house to get stoned. And someone putting the man machine on, and I remember thinking, "This is naff. This is impossibly camp and dated yeah. feeling." And and then something about that album, but particularly the album after it, which is Computer World from 1981, completely got under my skin, and it just became a really addictive, sort of perfectly conceived sound. And the more I looked into them, and the more I listened to them, the more I got sucked into this very particular mm. aesthetic world. Um, and they do what a lot of my favorite artists do which is they have they have this whole universe around them and it's completely their own and they give you a sense of time and place and purpose and who they are as as a as a group of people yeah. and i think that's just so compelling 100%. i actually went to uh <laughs> I, I, I took it this far instead of going to the mastering session for our third album get to heaven i went to a two-day academic conference at Aston University about craft work <laughs> with my mate who'd, who'd brought the man machine round. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah. So that was the apex of my like obsession with that band. I, I, so, I, yeah. I used to walk into um, like the, the, the town centre where I, I grew up to go in the library. Uh, this would have been probably 84, 85. And I would go in the library just to pick up craft work 
record sleeves because yeah. I was just fascinated by them. I'd only heard model Tour de France mm-hmm. um, just because Tour de France was in a, a breakdance movie that, that was on when I was a kid and model cool. was, was just a hit. And, and obviously around then there was lots and lots of sort of synth pop, uh, mm. but I hadn't kind of regressed and gone back and sort of realized that that's where it all started. But I just remember looking at them as well and just thinking they were just, and, and I mean, the sleeve of Autobahn is so stark and, it is, and, and yeah. just thinking, fuck, what is this? Like, and then in the end, just like hiring their records out from the library and just putting them on and just thinking, it sounds like it's from outer space. It doesn't sound it does, like yeah. anything else that was sort of floating around. And uh, I can imagine coming to it in the mid eighties as well, because of course I wasn't listening to it until like maybe twenty years later, yeah. and um, and it would have seemed all the more striking, I'm sure, because you've not yet had the, that full emergence of British like disco house club mm. culture rave, everything, all of that's still in the offing. Yeah. So yeah, and and I think they have a huge responsibility to bear in a way for the development of, of dance music culture, of course, and, and electronic music and whatever you want to call it, really. They're, they are, when people talk about the Beatles and the Stones as a sort of musical building blocks, I sort of think, no, <laughs> no, no. Beatles and Kraftwerk, that's, yeah. that's, that's where it's at for me. Yeah, I don't think I um, agree more with you there. Yeah, man. <laughs> uh, track two. The first song you remember hearing that had an emotional impact on you. So, again, this is one I could have chosen. I could almost have fitted some of these songs into other categories. Because I, I feel like I almost, I felt like I learnt feelings from songs before I experienced them. Like I, I knew what to look for later in life. Uh, things like love, loss, longing, all the L's, longing. <laughs> That's such a um, good shout. I've never thought that. No, I, I, and I thought, because I was listening to like the Beach Boys in the car with my parents or Michael Jackson or Motown and um, and not really understand understanding what they were singing about but not having experienced it. So I almost learnt those feelings from the songs before I ever experienced them myself. Yeah. Um, and it could have been the Beach Boys or Michael Jackson or Motown or any of the early stuff that I listened to. Um, that seemed so sincere and tender, um, but I got I've gone for "She Loves You" by the Beatles, but specifically the Hollywood Bowl live version because that happened to be the cassette that we had in the car when I was like four or five, and um, also because it's just raucous as well. Um, and it, I, obviously, there's a lot there's a lot of feeling in this song, and it's the, the, the Lennon and McCartney themselves have talked about the fact that all their songs and everybody else's songs up to this point have been I love you, you love me, but they took it into the third person, it's she loves you, which is, you know, that's kind of interesting, but lots has been said about that, I'm sure I don't need to talk about that really, but the the sheer life force coming through this is what strikes me. The, the recorded performance of the actual single version has so much incredible energy but this does too crucially it's live so you get that sense of occasion sense of ceremony it really captured my imagination i was young and it was also just because it was kind of the first pop record i ever heard really in the first um and because it was live yeah just the the sound of screaming girls (laughs) i remember thinking 
this sounds like a good time. <laughs> <laughs> I might like to, I might like to try this. Um, there's a bit in particular you know, before the second chorus where they go, you know, the famous yeah. two heads shaking up either the side of the mic and, and the crowd just goes bananas. Um, and they can barely contain the sound. You know, it's, it doesn't sound great. It's, mm. uh, it's, but the, the sound of a really punchy, well-drilled band really comes through it. And um, I remember about 10 years ago, a friend of mine called John Richards, who was in a number of great bands uh, in the town that I grew up in, um, said that it was the first noise rock record he'd ever heard, which I thought was such a cool way of putting it. Yeah. He should know. You know, it sounds like a garage punk band. It does. Yeah. And John should know because he was in Hey Colossus and Part Chimp and Unhome and another great band that we'll talk about later, actually. But yeah, I thought that was a really cool way of putting it. It does sound like, sounds like the Sonics did in 1965, yeah. you know, and really rough and ready because it's a live recording and because they're just, they're really tough, rough players. And I think that's great. And that's something that gets lost with in the story of the sort of pin-up pop band. Um, but yeah, emotionally, um, it's just very affecting because there's so much sincerity about it and, uh, and excitement and potential comes across in, in that song. And, uh, I could have swapped it out for any early Beatles song really, or any early Beach Boys song. Um, and, uh, equally Michael Jackson at that time in my life was a massive deal for me. I listened to your interview, uh, with Tim, uh, Tim Dillo, right. Who's a good mate of yeah. mine. And, uh, and I was really struck by, because uh, he's pretty much exactly the same age as me. I think we had more or less exactly the same musical experiences yeah. growing up. Um, and yeah, I, I was I was really into Michael Jackson and uh, I could have chosen early, early music of his that I feel like he was performing before he would have been old enough to experience any of these things as well. So it's, I feel, yeah, that's the thing for me. I think I learned these feelings from from the songs before learning them from life if you know what i mean yeah i don't know how well it's served me <laughs> burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping and that extends to their outdoor collection their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements featuring rust proof stainless steel hardware weather ready teak and quick dry foam cushions for Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Okay, well, I'm going to ask you for uh, track three. Uh, Jeremy, the song reminds you of your time at school. 
Um, see, this could have been the Radiohead track as well because they were sort of guiding light band in my life. Um, and but it could have been, to be honest, this could have been like it might have been a fairer reflection to have chosen like "I'm Horny" by Moose T or like the Rockefeller Skank or loads of decent chart hip hop that was around in the mid nineties because that's that's what I was hearing yeah. a lot of the time was listening to Radio One on the way to school and yeah. Where, 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 where was all this happening? Um, and enjoying a lot of it. Where, where was where was home and school? Oh, sorry, I, I, I lost you there. Sorry, just just wondering where, where, where uh, all I this was. Grew up in a town. This was in Tunbridge Wells, where I grew up. I was born in Portsmouth, and then I moved to Tunbridge Wells. And my dad got a job in London, and um, I went to school the next town up uh, called Tunbridge. And um, this was like I started secondary school in '96, I think. So. Um, yeah, so that it was that time on the radio. So there was sort of I was a bit too young to really get involved with Britpop in a practical sense, but I did hear a lot of music and I did really like it and it made me want to pick up a guitar, specifically the record that I've chosen, which is The Universal by Blur. Um and in a way the album it comes from is more important to me than the track I've chosen. I I just think it's beautiful and accomplished song but this album happened to be my entry point not just to blur but to like guitar music and indie culture or whatever you want to call it generally really um because i had been listening to loads of pop and rap and hip-hop up to that point and really enjoying it um but uh there was a kid in the year above me at school who was like an old family friend and i thought he was cool and he was into blur so i uh, <laughs> just wanted to copy him so i had like a wh smith voucher i needed to use up for my granny or something so i bought the great escape and I, it was my first experience of buying a record that was like out at that time because a lot of the music i'd listened to i wasn't really conscious of, of when it came out or didn't really care when it had come out but this was like happening now mm. um and it was something you could kind of be part of um and it, it, it's interesting to me now later in life this album because i now obviously I, I live in manchester now which is where everything everything is based and i've lived here 17 years and when i moved to manchester and i realized that so much of the music from the northwest and manchester especially of course is directly informed by its post-industrial heritage and working class culture and and basically, where I come from, the, the, more, the much more privileged southeast doesn't really have those things to the same degree, or at all, really. It doesn't have that um, sense of inherited pride. What it does have is a sort of huge suburban sprawl and this huge cultural and financial magnet in London, and and that when I grew up, everyone's dad worked there. Everyone got on the train in the morning, came home in the evening, and life was not impoverished or dangerous in any way. Like, you know, I'm thinking about this in terms of Manchester music a bit because because I love the Smiths and I love Joy Division. And I think those bands are particularly informed by their environment, and they wouldn't sound the way they did if they'd come from somewhere else. Um, but so life was not impoverished or dangerous in the way that it informed those bands but neither was it terribly exciting or romantic and there's a sense of you i mean you're from essex right so you know what it's like to grow up in the periphery of like a really big town that sucks in a lot of jobs and people and the best bands and your girlfriend and i i almost grew to resent london a little bit at that time i, I absolutely don't anymore but 
there's a sense of treading when you're young and you're growing up in a sort of commuter dormitory you're sort of you feel like you're treading water because there's a bit of a sort of blankness meaninglessness it, it was the, occasionally to it it was the reason i set this podcast up was based really? on, on them feelings um and like the, the 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 guy that I do lots of my stuff with is a musician or former musician called Scroobius Pip, and yeah. uh, and 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 Pip lives uh, literally just up the road from me, and and we were just talking about like because some other bands from Essex that we knew like the Horrors had, had, had relocated to London, mm-hmm. uh, and it was like that pressure. And I used to say to Pip, I was like, "How come you still live where you live?" And he's like, "Well, it's only like half hour." on a train from London, mm. but just that expectation that if you want to kind of, you know, exceed in what you do creatively, <laughs> you need to get out of Essex, you know, you need to go into yeah. London and th- and that kind of expectation. Like I just thought that was really odd that there's just this, all right. Yes. The only downside is, you know, that the trains leave, leave London for Essex at about half 11. So you can never have a good night out, mm-hmm. which, which is fundamentally shit. But like, and, and I guess it was, talk, you know, talking to Tim as well, that, you know, for, who, who's, who's mm-hmm. an Essex boy. Um, and, and, you know, just that expectation that anything in a creative field, you've got to move into the city. You can't, you yeah. can't do it in Essex. And, it, and it's just really strange. Like, and that's why I initially sat out and spoke to Pip and spoke to Get Cape, Wear Cape. And, and, and these musicians that, you know, some of them did just think, right, well, okay, I better move to London. And, and I just think, yeah, I think it's, I think it's a real shame that, that you feel that you have to. It can be, it. yeah. And later on, when we talk about the track I've chosen from my hometown, I chose it because that it's a band that typified a scene that, that, that showed me that that wasn't necessarily yeah. paramount. You didn't have to leave in order to, to make good music or have a scene around you. And, um, but that came a bit later, and I just remember this... Um, not really being aware of it until later in life, but the, this sort of ennui, I suppose, <laughs> that comes with with uh, coming from a from a place that isn't the big city, that sucks a lot of life in and out of it, mm. uh, in and out of London, uh, the beginning and the end of every day. Um, at, but also not coming from a place that has its own cultural heritage, particularly. Um, and I think this album, The Great Escape, does so much to capture that, that the, the sort of weird sexual moors of the suburbs, that's on stereotypes, the, the uh, sort of the commuter grind thing on Arnold Sane mm-hmm. and um, sort of time stretching out endlessly with little to show for it and your, your life just sort of fade, fade away. That's the track on this album mm-hmm. that sort of talks about that. Um, working for the sort of faceless entity corporation, Yukon Hero, he thought of cars. The, the, this this album came out at the same time as like the, I remember the first national lottery on the telly, um, and it was like an hour long show, and you'd have like PJ and Duncan on it, and it was a big deal the national lottery and the sort of weird distant sense of promise that that things might get better or things, but things aren't shit anyway. They're just a bit lifeless, and and that was a re- I think this is. Damon Arbonne has said that this is their darkest album. I think even though it's got Country House on it and a little bit of the sort of blur, knees up Mother Brown mm. thing, and it's just before they leave all of that behind and basically become pavement for a couple of records. Um, 
But I mean, they—they. They were... they, I think. I think there's so much sadness in this album. There's so much darkness. Um, there's this loneliness and isolation, and despite all of your perfectly comfortable middle class trappings, um, and I, for my money, they are the only band to have really documented what it was like to be in the southeast in the nineties, basically, for whatever that's worth. In the same way that the Smiths documented being in Manchester in the nineteen eighties, and yeah. how romantic and dangerous and rough and and, and you know they they totally captured a place in time and obviously blur london-based london associated band but the fact that they had this experience in essex is is what goes into this record i think and um that's yeah i i, I find it i find it really fascinating still and just just a really great band you know there's so much to offer I feel kind of vindicated by Blur in the end. I feel like it was worth being a Blur fan in the long term, yeah. even in 96 when everyone was an Oasis fan. And I was as well. Mm. But I, I knew that they were somehow the more artful act, and I really loved them. I, I, I always just thought like that, 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 that Oasis, are, you know, they're the stones, you know. They're going to just, they've got their formula. Mm-hmm. And they're never going to deviate from it very far. And they're going to put out solid mm. records, but they're not that yep. progressive and some of them are fucking great. Yeah. The first two Oasis albums are amazing. And I really like Be Here Now as well, even though yeah. it's a vilified album. Whereas I think, like, Blur were more Bowie. You know, they're like, right, next album, mm-hmm. let's try this. Yeah, totally. Let's try this. And, and like you say, you know, yeah. uh, Blur's the band that I've seen more than any other band. And, you know, I, I was... Oh, really? I was, you know, that I was lucky they played my venue, like, when Leisure come out, and, and I saw wow. them play so many times around sort of modern life. And... I actually got, I blagged it in. There was a music magazine in the in the nineties uh, called Select, and yeah, uh, I remember, yeah. And I, I, I mocked up a couple of fake press passes, and they were doing a seaside tour, <laughs> and they played Oscars on Clacton Pier to about hundred people, and uh, and I blagged it in, right. saying that I was uh, I was in the press. But then when Great Escape come, all of a sudden I was seeing Blur at Wembley Arena, and it was like. Like Shea Stadium, it was just screaming yeah. girls, and Damon was a pop star then. Yeah, you know, and and yeah. Blur were, and they were on the cover of Smash Hits and completely. stuff. Completely, it's odd, and and because I it think was, that, that's another similarity with the Smiths. I think you get they were pop pinups, but they were really they were they were a cult artistic affair at the same time. Certainly, latterly, but both of them bands had such strong pop sensibilities. You know, you can listen, oh, you can yeah. listen to. Fucking hell, like Girlfriend in a Coma is the most obvious example of that. Something so heart-wrenching, yet it's such a joyous, mm-hmm. you know, pop record. It's really jaunty. Yeah. yeah. Like, yeah. And, uh, and, and I think, you know, Blur done that, you know, at their commercial pop peak, you know, as you say, that, that album, Great Escape, is laced with misery. Yeah, it really is. It's mm. really unsettling, actually. Um, but I think all of that got overshadowed by the kind of, high street version of what they were and the tabloid idea of the sort of north versus south blur versus oasis yeah thing. completely uh which is a, which is a which is kind of an interesting cultural jump off point but it's not the full story and it's kind of simplistic but yeah i i um i also just i think this song is beautiful and um i really love the it's kind of it's it's quite accomplished it's a really weird song like the way they rhythmically it's it's a really strange i don't really know what time signature it's in it all adds up to eight but it's sort of three and three and two it's not it's not four and four um and i've always found that 
sort of thing, engaging because I'm a music student really at heart. <laughs> it's a it's a glorious record, it really is. Hello, I've interrupted the podcast again, haven't I? Sorry, it won't take a sec. All I want to say is the songs that we're talking about in this podcast, if we can't play them, it's just because of the regulations regarding playing licensed music and such. So if you want to hear the songs, just go over to Spotify and search Off The Beat and Track Podcast and you can listen to all the songs because I've put playlists up for each of these. If you can't find it on there, I'll send links on all the social media accompanying each episode. So you've just got to press that one button and you can go through and you can enjoy all the songs that our guest picks. Anyway, I'll shut up, get back to the podcast. See you on the other side. Whilst, whilst, before we move on to the next track, whilst we, we, we're talking school, like, how did you, how did you find school? Uh, mixed bag, like everyone, I suppose. I, um, I was lucky in as much as I had good friends pretty much immediately. And very quickly we all decided that we wanted to be involved in music and um, play in a band together. And, and we're still good mates now, 25 years later, all of us. So um, so I was very lucky in that respect. I don't think many people have sort of find their tribe straight away. And I was lucky in that respect. But um, a lot of uh, the aspects of being at that kind of school because I went to a boys state grammar school sort of a weird combination of thing, mm. ideas there um for better or for worse and um it I, there was a lot of um I think it, it had a lot of sort of culture that you would more readily associate with a private school which it was not and I I don't really know how I feel about selective education even um even though it's part of it certainly not private education I just I think it's it's mixed bag (laughs) but um but yeah anyway um just the the culture of it it was slightly militaristic in some aspects older male teachers i think thought thought of it as a private school almost or people that have been through that system themselves and then come to teach there and like they would call you by your surname which i just thought was so pathetic and deliberately dehumanizing (laughs) and i so i would i would try to i made an effort to call all my schoolmates by their first name which obviously everyone thought that was that made me a puff or whatever, <laughs> you know. It was that kind of thing. That 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 sort of thing I rubbed up against pretty yeah. much immediately and badly. But the extracurricular side of it was really artistic and really indulgent. And there's good theatre stuff and loads of good music stuff. And I just got involved with that, and I was really happy with all of that and happy with the people that I was mucking around with in that way. And I just ignored the kind of rugby and academic prowess side of it together i didn't i didn't do particularly well at school but i didn't do horribly and um the thing i got out of it was was my my four best friends which is nice (laughs) jeremy what was the first record you remember buying this is kind of an unclear picture for me because i think the first records i got my hands on were my parents in the classic way and i just sort of took their cassettes out of the car or just just quickly on that um, you, you, you mentioned Beach Boys and Beatles uh, earlier. Mm-hmm. Like, what other stuff was you getting exposed to? You know, musically at home. There was loads of classical music because that's my parents' bag, basically. And I was playing the cello and sort of playing little orchestras and singing in the church choir and um, and enjoying it mostly. Um, I didn't really connect with classical music properly until a bit later, and I do I do like it now, but I'm not 
I'm not an expert, whereas my dad actually is, and and my mum. That's the, that's what they do. They they were um, arts critics, so and not just music, but like theatre and uh, visual art and um, and opera. And there was loads of that sort of stuff around. They really prioritised the arts in, in the experience of me and my brothers, which was a nice thing, you know. And um, so yeah, uh, music was was important to everybody, and. The pop records they had were relatively limited, but as I showed more interest in it, they'd sort of buy more cassettes from Woolies. <laughs> so I remember um, my mum buying Bad by Michael Jackson very clearly, and that being a kind of road to Damascus moment where I was like, what the fuck is this? That's for me. <laughs> and that was it, you know. Um, uh, but before that was, yeah, we had Endless Summer by the Beach Boys, which was a really huge record. Um, for me because you'd stick it on in the car when you're having a family holiday on the Isle of Wight and I'd sort of see the images of California <laughs> as Shanklin <laughs> um, <laughs> or whatever <laughs> and um, um, there and the Beatles and but mostly I, I kind of filled in the blanks for myself I would get stuff out of the library and tape it and, then, and that kind of thing and um, I would I would hear stuff at like so when I left primary school there were a lot of discos in particular and it would be like I feel it in my what's it called Love Is All Around Me mm-hmm. by Wet 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 and that was an undying record and uh, and take that and that kind of thing would be like the slow dance at the end of the night but then you'd get like Boys in the Hood soundtrack as well in the middle and I thought all of it was really interesting <laughs> and um, stuff I would hear would be like Baby Come Back by Pat O'Banton which I thought yeah. was amazing. And I still really like it. Um, and also, I listened to it recently with John Jonathan Higgs from Everything Everything because he he had the same. We're exactly the same age, and he had the same experience with that song. He just thought it was awesome, and he got that sort of feeling of like, I never want this to end from it, <laughs> which I did as well. So, and what that meant was that I would try to find a compilation that had it on because then I'd get 40 other tracks as well with it. And so I, I bought a lot of the Now albums when I was like 11 and I had like our price vouchers to use um, for my birthday or whatever. Um, so I, I bought a lot of compilations and one of them was Summer Dance 95 because the opening track on it was Boom 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 by the Outhead Brothers, which I was going to choose for this category. But then I realised that the only version on Spotify is like not the radio edit and which is the the version I know, but and it's it's so foul mouthed. You know <laughs> it, it's so mad you say this, right? Because <laughs> someone else picked this. Yeah. Uh, oh, really? Yeah. And like, I can't think who it was. It was a while back now, and and for me, my memory of it was just this kind of novelty throwaway pop yeah, song. Yeah, same here. And and they're like, mate, have you listened to the fucking words? And I was like, I know. No. And they're like, mate. Yeah. <laughs> It's really explicit and it's really quite misogynistic. So I couldn't, I couldn't in all good conscience, <laughs> in all good conscience, choose it for this. So, so I've gone with the next track on the same compilations from Summer Dance '95, which is Enika uh, Mosey and Here Comes a Hot Stepper, Wonderful. which is such a tune. And actually, I'm glad I've gone with this because I listened to it earlier just to sort of check it over, um, not not for the same reason that I had to veto the Out Here Brothers, just just because I wanted to hear it again and enjoy yeah. it. And it's it sounds amazing now. Still holds still. up, and it yeah, it really holds up. And there was a lot of that kind of reggae pop stuff around at that time. Massive. Um, and this is just a great tune. Also, I was reminded of the fact that 
you know, the, the classic opening line, Hick, uh, I'm the lyrical gangster murderer. Yep. My mate Leon in the 2009 census under occupation wrote lyrical gangster brackets murderer. <laughs> and the government seemed to be fine with that. <laughs> so, so this is for Leon. <laughs> oh, fantastic. Um, whilst talking about record shops and, uh, and, and how, I mean, how important were record shops for you when you started to kind of get into music? And what's your relationship with record shops and predominantly independent record shops now? Mm. Well, uh, record shops are really important, certainly pre-internet, because it was one of the ways you could find out what albums existed by who. Mm-hmm. It wasn't it, it, people. It's so easy to overlook this now, but the poverty of choice when it came to music was kind of important to me uh, because it meant okay, I've got these eleven cassettes and two cds it means i'm really i'm going to get to know them really fucking well Mm. i'm going to know every inch of that music whether i like it or not because that's what there is and you couldn't just get online and listen to absolutely everything and and download a discography in five seconds and flick through it i think that you had to it meant that i really studied everything because there wasn't anything else to listen to and there wasn't anything else to do so i would go to the library and look at records by artists that i was interested in and, and and take them home and tape them or and then latterly when i had a bit of pocket money or my, my paper round money or when i was earning from saturday jobs and stuff i would go to record shops and do the same thing this was just on the cusp of the internet by then um but basically there wasn't much information except via sort of words of mouth and yeah. um so so i would go to record shops and discover what was out there and there was there were loads of good ones in terms of roles at that time because as well as sort of the big chains like HMV. Actually, no, I wasn't there until later. We had our price. We had Woolworths was good for like cheap CD and cassette singles. Um, and we had Criminal Records, which was a big secondhand two story uh, record shop that had almost entirely vinyl, but did have CDs as well. And that was cool because you could go in there and you could find deleted singles and stuff. Yeah. Um, on CD and and then I go and look at the vinyl. I I didn't have a turntable, but vinyl had a sort of specialness about it, and I knew that it was something I wanted and yeah. and should value. So I would buy a lot of twelve inch and seven inch vinyl even before I had a turntable, and I'm really glad I did because I got some really good bits in those days. Um, and we also had Long Player in Tunbridge Wells, uh, which was a normal independent record shop and it would have new releases. They'd have the occasionally in store. Um, and I would go in there and talk to staff about new music, um, or like what's, what velvet underground album do I buy? Yeah. Uh, that kind of thing. Um, because there wasn't, that information wasn't really forthcoming, um, anywhere else. And I did, I did read the music press as well, but yeah, record shops, uh, are important. And, uh, I, I really, I really enjoy visiting record shops on tour actually because I like I buy I buy records on tour like a postcard because I never forget where I was when I bought it. Yeah. And um for some reason um and so yeah most of my records I've bought in other countries and then partly destroyed in my suitcase on the way home. Yeah. <laughs> but but then when I get it out and I stick it on I remember where we were when I bought it and what we were doing the tours and so yeah that's a nice way of buying music and um there are great record shops in Manchester, obviously, and I've spent a lot of time and money in some of them. Yeah, and you know, it's a shame to see them 
uh, struggle. Not all of them do, but and I think that's the so-called vinyl revival has done a little bit to help some record shops in some areas, but it's a it's a bit misleading, I think, in some ways. I think a lot of it's down to Urban Outfitters selling Spice Girls repressings. It's not it's not really a true reflection of the health of the record buying public or whatever. Um, Agreed. But yeah, so yeah, um, those I was. We had an HMV latterly as well. Tommy was. I think that was there after I left. Um, none of these shops are there anymore. By the way, yeah. not a single one in Tommy's was. Um, I'm. I, I haven't lived in the town for a long time, but I might be wrong. There may be. Hopefully, others have sprung up now. Um, but yeah, it was a shame to see them sort of one by one go under. Yeah. When I was younger. Track five. The song that soundtrack your years clubbing. You're still a young man. You're still clubbing, I'm sure. Well, not not so much. Um, <laughs> see, I mean, partly down to my personality. I don't know. I, when I saw this category, I thought, have I even? Have I ever? Did I have years clubbing? Well, do you know what? I, I, I've I thought, never quite wrote the question out right. It it, it, it does lead you into thinking in some chrome laden, you know high street kind of commercial dance club it's, yeah. it's not that it, it can be your local sweaty well this is club. what i realized mm. exactly and i think it's it, the, the word club club clubbing <laughs> night club yeah I, I think um my my sort of introduction to that culture was in the 90s when everybody had a ministry of sound record bag at yeah. school and um uh and like cream flyers yeah were being handed out in all the, the like record shops and clothes shops and stuff. And um, that sort of Ibiza culture, super club culture, I was just way too young for it for a start. But also I didn't really have any, have a relationship to it. Mm. Um, but um, I liked some of the music. Uh, but then of course, I, yeah. So when I was old enough to do, to do, to actually go to licensed premises and, and, and stay out late and stuff, this was like early 2000s. So, and I went to Manchester University, uh, University in Manchester, Salford Uni, um, in 2003, and uh, and totally coincided with like the first mega Franz Ferdinand hit, and uh, and that being an illustration of what was happening in indie clubs, and so you could go out and dance to Franz Ferdinand and Interpol, and in a way, it would have, the most representative choice would have been Mr. Brightside for this category because. It was just huge at that time, and it continues to be. In fact, um, when I was on tour last year with Foles, I was playing bass with Foles for most of last year, and um, Kit, the percussionist, and I were walking around Lausanne and uh, and spent ages doing a calculation on how, how many times we'd each danced the Mr. Brightside. It's like, okay, so let's say you go out three times a month for, and you hear it probably every night for six years and then you've got so many weddings and we worked out I can't remember what the figure we alighted on was but we worked out the number of times we think we've danced for Mr Brightside and it's quite a lot and the Smith comes into this as well because this is an interesting thing about this time this point in time in the mid-2000s is that like the Buzzcocks and Joy Division and the Smiths and that kind of music seemed to be as big as the new music almost certainly when you went out and um, the Smiths were experiencing like their mainstream commercial high point mm. 20 years after their debut album it was it was and you know 15 years or whatever since they split up so so that was kind of interesting but all of this of course for my generation was completely sparked by the strokes which is what i've gone for um and i've gone for hard to explain 
but it could have been anything really off yeah. this album um and it could have been again this could have been my choice for like what reminds you most of school because this came out right at the beginning of when i started sixth form and it's just so exciting and exhilarating and i was really pleased to form my own relationship with this band and this album just before the sort of before they became really hot and the ubiquity set in and none of that had a chance to put me off because by the time it happened i was already kind of irreparably in love with this album and this band and uh i was surprised in a way at how much i liked it because it was quite a limited sonic palette um and it was fairly retrogressive and it was actually cool and i wasn't cool and i didn't like things that were cool and i but the songs were just undeniable and they they continue to endure and outlive their shallower contemporaries i think for the same reason that Blur do, because yeah, they look great and they were pinups and cetera, but they could just fucking play, man. Really accomplished musicians and the songs are so melodically ambitious. Great pop records. Great pop records. Julian, as a melody writer and as a vocalist, it's just so appealing. And people talk about Lou Reed and stuff with, in relation to how he sings, but I think it's... He's like a crooner. He's got this really creamy baritone thing. I remember um, reading the Q review for their second album and somebody said he was like Perry Como singing through a traffic cone, which I thought was spot on. <laughs> I've never forgotten that. It's like, that is actually yeah. what it's like. And, um, and it was, yeah, just really sexy. And it felt like, and I was, again, you know, I was listening to Kid A when this came out and I was, and it was all very serious, worthy music. And to have something arrive fully formed in this way that was that completely disregarded all that that musical sensibility that I was really into and still am, but it was just like, we look fucking great. We've got great songs. We're really young. There's a sense of sort of danger and sexiness about the whole thing. And I, yeah, it was so, so enticing. Oh, I think and this just... particular track, go on. I just think it, it really pulls you into... Like it, it just made New York seem like the greatest place on planet Earth. Absolutely, yeah. And, and all of their influences, you could trace back to CBGBs and, mm-hmm. and all of them iconic artists that were being, you know, shouted about as being the bands that influenced the Strokes, and and obviously that then led to a myriad of bands from New York all having, you know, commercial yep. success. And it, some I guess, of them are amazing. Yeah. Yeah, it kickstarted. I, I love scene. Interpol, like one of my favourite bands of all time, and and I, I, you know, that was that was part of that wave, wasn't it? And I actually watched the Yeah Yeah Yeah's two thousand and nine Reading set last night, and just just thinking about how much I've enjoyed that band in my time as well. And yeah, and I was, have you read that really great book uh, called Meet Me in the Bathroom? Yeah, which is named. Yeah, it's great. I think they're making that into a movie soon, or a they, documentary, which I'm really looking forward to. to. Right. So yeah. That's great. Um, it's a really good documentation of that place and time, I think. Mm-hmm. But yeah, this particular song is just, it's really pacey and really melodic. And it seems to encapsulate something about being young and vaguely in trouble. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Miss the last bus. I'll take the next train. Um, I'll say the right thing, but act the wrong way. That, that basically sounds like all of my late teens and early 20s, basically. Yeah. Those two things. <laughs> Um, it's really weird. Like, so, I, yeah, I, I find it very romantic still. Massively, massively, and, and I just wonder when, because you, what you touched on there with the Smiths and 
and and that kind of you know their resurgence that they had then. Like I've I've run a, a an alternative nightclub for for thirty years, um, and watching these circles like of these bands becoming requested again, and mm-hmm. literally I would say the year leading up to you know the the, the lockdown, the Smiths again was just getting this huge thing where like eighteen year old kids were turning up at my club. And going, can you play the Smiths? And it was like, yeah. where's this coming from? Because it's not happened yet for Interpol. It's not happened yet for the Strokes. It's it no. doesn't feel like it's been long enough. And then mm. you know, I know what you mean. And it, it's really strange because I'll drop obstacle or not even Jow, and it's like, come on, you got you, you got to go for this. And yeah, and they don't buy it. But if I put on Big Math, bang, there's yeah. like all of these young kids going mad, and it's like, and that's that's a great thing about that band. I think that there's something universal. Mm. that appeals to young people in their music and um i've always been really struck by how you know top top shop started selling smith's t-shirts <laughs> in the mid-2000s i remember thinking this should put me off in some way but it's a testament to the quality of what they did that it it's always felt to me like they are for me and me alone even though they're one of the best known british bands of all time but I've, they've never lost the personal appeal for me. It's become it's become harder to be a Smiths fan in the last couple of years. I've, but I think it's I think it's generally agreed to that the the um, the music of the Smiths is something sanctified and and for everyone and and that we can't let one element of the band put us off. <laughs> I, I mean, don't get me wrong. I loved Morrissey's records as well, not as much as I loved the Smiths, but I'm, I'm just a bit disappointed by him as somebody who really looks up to him. There's somebody who celebrated difference. I think it's kind of sad what's happened to him. Jeremy. He's just gone fucking mad, hasn't he? That's basically it. I've, I've, <laughs> I've literally got his words tattooed all over my body. Have and, you? Oh, and, man. And yeah. it's like, oh, please stop saying dumb shit. Please stop yeah, saying I know. dumb shit, man. But I think we'll get better at this as a society. It's just, just knowing where to draw the line and say, this is the good work. This is the questionable stuff. And this is the individual. And actually, it's all separate. Well, let's let, let's touch on the questionable um, stuff for a minute because this is um, something that that crops up quite a lot um, because of normally two bands that have been so fucking influential on people's creative journey, and that is Michael Jackson and that mm. is and that is the Smiths. Fuck yeah, and like, yeah, and, two of my big biggest loves. And so mm. I have to ask, and, and, and I always think I'm really curious to know um, people's responses to it are when i ask can you separate the music from the art uh, sorry the person from the art and i don't I, really know i'm still working that out because i i, I, I interviewed um uh, uh um one of the guys from um the kooks uh, a couple of weeks ago and he mentioned michael jackson and i asked him that question and he was so upset about it he was like no was no i can't go near it i can't go near it like he went to see stevie wonder and mm-hmm. uh, and then like one of the bands started doing a, a cover of a Michael Jackson song. So I just walked out. He said it just made me sick to my stomach. And I was like, mm-hmm. "Wow!" Like, but mm-hmm. I guess people have different kind of you know opinions on it. Well, I just wondered what how you feel about it. And, I I'm, and I'm not putting Morrissey in the same about... box no, as no, Michael Jackson. No. no, well, it's really. It's, I don't know how I feel about it, but I know that I haven't listened to Michael Jackson for like two years. Yeah, um, and that's remarkable to me i've also been to a couple of weddings and not heard michael jackson and that is also remarkable yeah um that's that's how it's broken down for me yeah. and i i find that very 
sad because I, I think the music's fantastic. And But at the same time, I say I haven't listened to him. I mean, I haven't chosen to listen to him. You tour America, you're going to hear him in every bar still. Oh, I really? Think, yeah, pretty much. I think outside of LA and New York and the sort of, you know, centres of commerce and arts where people... Yeah. Um, or maybe best, I don't know, best informed about this stuff. I'm not sure if I can say that really, but um, his musical is still running in the West End. It's still running in Vegas. I don't know how much it will dilute his legacy in the long term. And I don't know how I feel about that either. I'm, I'm not really the person to ask about this stuff. Um, I feel like I'm still working out how to separate the, the, the artistic from the personal. I, and, um, but I haven't listened to him. And the, thing, the same thing happened with the Smiths. I didn't really listen to the Smiths for a couple of years until beginning of this year where like personal circumstances dictated that I listened to the Smiths every day, as I did for about six years in my early 20s. <laughs> we've all been but, there, brother. Um, we've all been there. We, you know, we've all been there. And, uh, and I'll, I'm sure I'll be there again. But um, yeah, also because the Smiths are a great band. This is the thing. You know, there are four people involved in that music. And I don't think you could have taken one element away and have the same product um that's really important to, sta- to I say that like John, johnny is johnny and he's the coolest man to walk the planet but he is there's there's another two members of that band who were fucking incredible that absolutely that get um kind of overlooked sometimes yeah especially in andy's case i think because he's he's one of the best bass players ever i think and uh he he's like alex james i think in that he's he's overshadowed by by a really visionary guitar player, mm. but does does is as good as a musician, probably better than even he cares about. Yeah, which I think is definitely Alex's thing. He, yeah. Like he's so good, he's better than he even knows. Yeah, um, but he also doesn't care, and he doesn't put himself out there as a serious musician because he's really interested in models and and and, and drugs. And and that was that was his version of himself in the nineties. Yeah, know? he wasn't. Whereas Graham was like really furrowed brow, talking about Slim. You know, that's yeah. that. And whereas and uh, Alex is just as good a player, but was just into Duran Duran. And <laughs> but and, uh, you get the same thing with Andy, I think, a little bit because he, I think he. Um, I don't know him, but uh, I, I imagine that he didn't take himself as seriously as a musician, yeah. even though he's he's basically as gifted as Johnny. Yeah. I met Johnny last year for the first time, uh, and um, I sort of put my foot in it. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Well, no, I didn't because he's such a nice bloke, and you know, I could, I, I didn't upset him in any way. But I just asked him a really stupid question, which I'm sure, as a Smiths fan, you will understand this. As a so, if you, um, as you are, and I am, are a Smiths devotee. The afternoon where Johnny went unannounced to Morrissey's house and knocked on the door and asked him to form a band is is sort of legendary, you know, catalyst <laughs> for the culture. And uh, that's 385 Kings Road, which is around the corner from here. And uh, I met Johnny. We, uh, I was on tour with Foles and we played a festival in Zagreb. And we, me and Jimmy had gone to see johnny played the night before and uh and then Foles had played and they'd watched us and that was really cool and then we all ran into each other at the airport and i know his bass player ewan quite well so i was just chatting to ewan ewan introduced me to johnny and that was i'd i'd sort of been cross paths with johnny before i'd never want to say hello because i he's such a big deal in my mind um and i was really shy uh but just to be introduced to him in a branch of costa at the airport was fine that was manageable i could deal with that um and he was just, you know, we were just small talk and stuff. And he was like, so whereabouts in Manchester do you live? 
And I said, oh, I live in Old Trafford. He's like, oh, I used to knock about in Old Trafford and Stretford when I was younger. Whereabouts do you live? And I said, do you know King's Road? And there was this flicker of incredulity in his eyes. And he was like, yeah, yeah, I know King's Road. <laughs> Why have I asked Johnny Mark? He knows where the King's Road is. <laughs> Twat. <laughs> oh, fantastic. So, yes, yes, I do know that because that's where I started. The Smiths. Right. <laughs> I'll get me coat. I get me coat, yeah. Well, I'm sure it didn't register with him, but afterwards I was like, oh, what an idiot. <laughs> but he was he was absolutely charming, of course. <clears throat> okay. Favourite song from an artist from your home county, please. So, and despite everything I said earlier about <laughs> growing up in, in a sort of Tory voting community dormitory being meaningless and, and blank and empty, yeah. it, it wasn't like that at all. I had a really nice time living in Tamworth Royals. Um, and um, partly because, despite its sort of um, right-wing tennis club sort of veneer and um, you know, it's comically associated with with sort of conservatism, mm-hmm. basically, isn't it? You know, disgusted of Tamworth Royals and all that. There is actually a really thriving underbelly um, uh, and a really strong sort of art scene in Tamworth Royals, basically thanks to one building and a few people, which is the Forum, which is the classic touring venue that's been there 27, 28 years. Um, and I started going there when I was a teenager and um, basically went there every day in my school uniform after school just to help out and sort of learn the trade a little bit. And uh, and it was where one of my first bands played. And as I started to understand the, the scene that had informed the opening of a DIY venue in the first place, yeah, I discovered that there was a label. Mm-hmm. And there were loads of bands that locally that had released on it. And it all basically gravitated around one guy called Jason Dorman, who had been um, promoting American, touring American post-hardcore bands in the building that I was at nursery school in. <laughs> so I'd be at nursery school in the, in the daytime in the late 80s. And then they would kick the kids out and then Jason would come in and put on like Fugazi or whatever. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm exaggerating slightly. I don't think he did put Fugazi on, but I think yeah. he tried. And it was that sort of era and it was that sort of music. And he was in a band in the early 90s called Joey Fat who and I've chosen Home Dream by Joey Fat for this category because they are one of my favourite bands because they're, they're just so musically inventive and they have this really long, checkered history. They were really active in the early 90s and they toured with, like, Ligament and Scarfo and Green Day even took them on tour a couple of times. They did the Dookie tour in the UK. Wow. Um, when Green Day was still, you know, basically a DIY punk band and um yeah so they had that that period of activity in the 90s and then they split up and some of them formed a band called unhome who i adore as well which was basically really enthralled to slint and then they reformed and they have it was just a really good time to to go and see local rock bands when i was in my late teens and early 20s because they were so inventive and it was so informed by American math rock, post-hardcore, post-rock, whatever you want to call that stuff. So like Slint, Shellac, Figazi, yeah. 
uh, that kind of thing. And I, I, I took it all for granted at the time. I was like, yeah, these are just some local bands, and I loved them. But I didn't realise how weird it was to come from a place like Tunbridge Wells and have music like that that was so common. And yeah. um, and that being the extant sound of, of that time and place. It was very old, really, because it could have been Chicago in 1992. It was really unusual when I think about it now. Um, and Charlotte Field were another really big band at that time. And I would basically go and see either Joey Fat or Charlotte Field or Cove or a number of bands like that basically every week for a couple of years somebody would be playing in brighton or london or oxford or tunbridge wells and that's how i first crossed paths although we didn't know each other with yanis and jack from Foles because they yeah. were playing in the edmund fitzgerald and there were loads of really really good bands around that time and there would be all dayers and two dayers and yeah there were just loads of really good really cooperative bands and they were they would put each other out on each other's labels swap tracks for compilations and um yeah it was uh it was really a huge influence on me not just musically but on the way that you can do things on the sense of cooperation within within music and um yeah diy sensibility basically which i try to keep in mind yeah despite being a major label shill <laughs> <laughs> Um, okay, last track, play DJ now, uh, a song that many may not know that you would like them to hear. Um, I've gone with um, Love for the Sake of Love by Claudia Barry. I don't know if you know this. I don't. But that is indeed the point, isn't it? Um, Claudia Barry is a Jamaican-born singer who I think grew up in Canada and then moved to Germany, and then I think she did loads of her work in, in Europe. But um, I don't think she's particularly well known, and I don't know much about her. But I happened to hear this track on the radio one day, um, and I just really enjoyed it. And it's really spacey; it's it's quite psychedelic, but it's basically a disco record. And the way it operates, it's like a very slow burn. Instruments come in one at a time. It's just building up this really perfect groove bit by bit. And basically, they do the whole number once. And then start again, and only at that point does the vocal come in. So it's a really unusual thing for like a disco diva record because it's basically the sound of the band, and then she comes in with this really lovely purring vocal. When you eventually get the chorus second time round, it's got all these beautiful stacked female vocal harmonies in it. Um, and I just I think it's really weird <laughs> in a really appealing way, and um, it sounds great as well. It sounds really luscious and spacious and crisp. Um, and yeah, really sumptuous sounding record. It reminds me of, um, in particular of a night in Milwaukee that I had with Foles last year. We, if you're in Milwaukee on a US tour, you know, you're in deep, like you've already been there ages basically. And we, we'd got, we'd had a late night somewhere the night before, maybe Chicago or something. And then we'd got up, um, to go to a basketball game that we'd been invited to, which was really cool. And everyone was hungover. And then we'd gone from the basketball game to this bar that they'd, they'd been to before where they have these huge, like pint glass, bloody Mary's. 
and there's an upturned bottle of lager in it. So the more you drink of it, the more it becomes a Michelata. And it comes with a fucking burger served in it on a stick. We'd had like loads of those before the sound check. <laughs> it was just one of those days where I remember feeling like, oh, we're in too deep here. This is a gig too far. No, we need a day off. And also it was the only show that hadn't sold out on that tour. And the band were a bit itchy about it. They were like, oh, this one might be a bit of a duffer um and the the club that we were playing was um really strange building on the outskirts of the city center and uh, called the rave and it had like a huge ballroom upstairs and then a the main gig room in the middle and this underground swimming pool underneath that which was apparently haunted by people that had drowned in it um and it definitely the whole building had this really weird mood um and the band did some shots in the swimming pool and said yeah that's haunted and then we had to play we had to play a basketball with some radio competition winners upstairs and then we played the gig and it was a total ripper completely unexpectedly it was rams there was just massive walk up and um and it was really really good and then afterwards we just had a really fun night sitting downstairs in this kind of moroccan style dressing room <laughs> you know do you remember ponana yeah remember those clubs that they used to those bars around the country. It was like that. It was like in the dressing room and everybody, we were just, yeah, we'd, we'd found our groove, I think by that point. And, um, everyone was taking it in turns with the orcs and somebody put Oasis on and we were like, I think we sat around and listened to don't like back in anger. Like <laughs> we were that tired <laughs> and really enjoyed it as well. Really loved it. And I put this on and really, and everyone was quite struck by it. And, uh, it really just reminds me of that night and that time in my life <laughs> wonderful well jeremy we put on um a uh, spotify playlist to accompany the podcast with all of the tracks that we've uh, spoken about uh, alongside the ones that you've chosen as well um and so that will um accompany this when it comes out um as we find ourselves hopefully uh on the on the way out of uh, the mm. lockdown scenario uh, we've, we're finding ourselves in um what's coming up and what are you looking forward to <laughs> Oh, well, I'm looking forward to putting an album out on December. December? No. I'll try that again. Let's, let's do some professionalism. <laughs> We've got an album out. On... <laughs> okay. We've got an album out on September the 11th. Um, and I'm really looking forward to that because we've been living with the record for six months since it was finished. And, uh, and obviously a couple of years almost by the time it comes out in terms of the writing and everything. So it'll be really nice to finally have that fly the nest and for, for people to hear it. Um, and it's a shame that we can't enjoy the sort of victory lap of the touring <laughs> that normally accompanies an album. Um, but it's meant that we have had to be creative and rigorous and in other ways. So we've, we've found other ways to make videos and to, to do press pictures and things like that during lockdown, which has been quite fun for a while. But it's a shame just not to... Um, have the experience of sharing the music with people in the live environment because that's for me what I understand best and how I understand how the music resonates and what it means to people I don't really get it I don't read any of the reviews or anything so I don't know I don't look at what people say online or anything like that so I probably should do more of that now but um yeah it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't resonate for me in the same way as, as uh, actually seeing it with the whites of your eyes in front yeah. of other people so um so that's a shame but i am i'm looking forward to to it ending i suppose yeah um great, yeah, that's a great answer year, that is the plan <laughs> yeah. yeah that's i'm sure you are too i'm uh, we're gonna get on the road next year 
God willing. And um, we've got uh, a UK tour on sale now for, for March and April. Um, and I think people really want to see live music as again, as well as play it. So I'm looking forward to that really. And hopefully it will come in as little as seven months time. If, uh, if we're lucky. Oh, fingers crossed, mate. Fingers crossed. Jeremy, thank you so much for your time today, mate. Thank you. It's been a pleasure Thanks talking to you. I really enjoyed it, you. mate. Thanks, mate. Take care. There you go. Um, wonderful chat. And uh, yeah, re- really, really a lovely fella. And, and we had a, a natter afterwards. And yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's just, it's really weird. Uh, you know, we, we, we were speaking about it before we press record as well about the kind of, um, doing these things remotely and uh yeah it is it is a shame i've had you know i've been blessed to have had some amazing chats during you know this lockdown period that we're in um all remotely um but you know i i think you know it, it, we've we've all got better at, at, at chatting over these zooms and skypes and whatever else you you, you use um and yeah it's some um, I am missing it now, though. You know, I, I, I do want to sit back in a room. It's like when when the interview finishes, it's sometimes just nice to take the headphones off and and just you know have a have a, a relaxed chat that's you know completely off the mic and and you know and and have a handshake or a hug. It's nice, you know. But um, I think we're we you know we're getting closer to when these things can happen. So uh, yeah, as soon as it's safe to do so, I look look forward to. Uh, so yeah, sitting in a room and, and, and recording these chats face to face as well. Um, but we've all got to do what we got to do, and uh, and yeah, and thankfully we're all getting better at these remote chats. So uh, this was a prime example of such a chat. Um, thanks again for listening. Um, thanks loads again to Jeremy for uh, giving up his time. Um, go and check out the new album. Uh, I'll put links to where you can buy it uh, on the bio to this podcast. And uh, yeah, I'll be back soon. Be nice to each other, and uh, yeah, bye bye. I've got an announcement. Save Our Souls Clothing. www.sosclothing.co.uk Why am I telling you this? Because they're our official sponsor. Yeah, that's right. Go and check them out because their clothing is off the scale. You're going to love it. So they've decided they want to be our sponsor, which is amazing. And what I have to do is I have to tell you about why they're amazing. So here's a little bit of blurb. So they've only been going a year, and they're based in Southend-on-Sea, just up the road from me. They put the company together based on a, a love of tattoos and alternative music, and they've worked with some of the greatest artists around the world to produce these items of clothing that are as unique as you lot. All of the designs are printed using biodegradable, sustainable and water-based inks. And in addition to that, they only print on garments made by members of Fairwear Foundation. I mean, come on, great clothing and a conscience. Since going live in April last year, they've seen their audience grow massively and are now selling orders all across the world. And they were recognised by Cosmopolitan magazine as one of the best sustainable clothing brands alongside names such as Stella McCartney. I mean, that's quite a first year, right? So, go and check them out because they've put a lot of love into supporting this podcast and I couldn't be happier. What else they've done is they've given you 15% off. So if you head over to www.sosclothing.co.uk, do a bit of shopping, see what you like, throw it in the basket, and then on the way out, put in the discount code BEAT15. 
BEAT15, and that'll save you 15% off. Amazing, right? www.sosclothing.co.uk. Official sponsors of Off the Beaten Track podcast. It's Off the Beaten Track podcast on the Distraction Pieces Network. Keep me, stew with him. 